Romans chapter 8. We'll get too excited. We're not going to stay there that long. We've been talking about, um, over the last few weeks, hope. 1 Corinthians 13 says that um, the gifts of the Spirit will fade away. We won't need them anymore when we see Him face to face because they're a substitute for His manifest presence. But there are three that will abide because they're eternal. There's faith, hope, and love. We hear an awful lot about faith. That's in the name of the church. We hear an awful lot out about love because God is love. But the one of those three we hear very little about is hope. And yet it's essential. It's really as important and it's eternal. It's important and eternal because it's eternal. It's important for a number of reasons. And it's often the one we don't hear a lot about, we don't think a lot about. And most Christians that I deal with when it comes to praying and believing God, most Christians aren't aren't operating in hope. And we've begun to see why it's so important. First of all, we saw in Hebrews 6 that it's the anchor of our soul. It's what keeps us steady. It's what keeps us on course. And we'll see some more of that as we go into this study. And the second main thing we saw is that it's, according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, it it's, it's what our faith gives substance to. And so when we're out trying to operate in faith, but we have no hope, your faith has nothing to give direction to. And we've looked at the example of, it's like a thermostat in a furnace. The furnace has the power and the ability to raise the temperature of your house up to wherever it is that you want. But it won't do anything until the thermostat tells it where you want it. The thermostat sets a goal for your furnace to bring the temperature up to. And so when we're trying to operate in faith, it's like trying to get your furnace to operate without a thermostat. It doesn't know what to produce or where to produce it. There's no focus to it. And so hope is very important. We've, then we began to look last week at what hope isn't. And the reason we talked about what hope isn't is because we all have an image in our mind of what hope is based on the way we were raised, based on the way our families talked about hope, based on what experiences told us. But in many cases, it's not what the Bible means about hope. So to us, in, in our general vernacular, and our general experience, hope basically means wishing something were so. It's kind of weak. Well, you know, do you think, you know, do you think you're going to have a better year next year than you had this year? Well, I hope so. And that's just kind of, you know, a, a positive wish. But the word for hope in the New Testament, we read this to you last week. This is out of Vines. It's Elpsis, E-L-P-I-S. And this is how Vine just defines it. Favorable and confident expectation. A favorable and a confident expectation. That's really what it is. It's a confident, steadfast, expecting, and in most cases the implication is expecting something good. Expecting something good. Many people, when they're trying in the middle of a trial or a test or a difficult time, and they're trying to operate in their faith, don't have an expectation of something good going to happen. In fact, they're trying to get their hopes, they're trying to get their, using their faith as a substitute. I never said this before. They're going, trying to use their faith as a substitute for hope because they're putting their hope in their faith. So if I can get my faith up high enough, then I'll have some hope. But your faith only gives substance to what you're already hoping for. So if you're not hoping for something, your faith isn't going to be able to produce that. So we're trying to use our faith as a means of having hope. But hope doesn't come from faith. 
We're going to find out later on what hope comes from, but we need to find out first of all what it is. So it's a confident expectation of something positive happening. And so how many times, again, in the midst of a trial when things are falling apart around you and you're going to build your hope up, do you really believe something good's going to happen? Do you have a really confident expectation, wow, something good's about to happen to me? That Oral Roberts used to say that? Something good's going to happen to me. That's hope. That's hope. And, and you know, when you're walking around... You don't have to hear what you're singing. There's no hope there. Because hope shows up on your face. Hope shows up in your words. Hope shows up in the tone of your voice. I mean, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know it's going to work out. And you can see this in the Apostle Paul, because he wrote, he said, God is at work causing all things things to work together for good for those who love God or are called according to their purpose. A lot of people quote that, but that's a verse of hope. So we started to look at what hope is, but the other ingredient of that we begin to see is in Hebrews 11.1, 1, because the first part is faith gives substance to things. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, but the rest of that verse is that the evidence of things not seen. And I told you last week in, that, in the Greek part, the Greek, the original language of that verse, the word thing means something that actually exists. Therefore, it's something that actually exists, but you don't see it with these natural senses. And we talked about that where, well, where does it naturally exist? It exists in the spirit realm first. Everything exists first of all in the spirit realm, and then it manifests in this realm. So all of this universe at one point existed in the heart and mind of God. And then God spoke it into existence. And that's why it says in Hebrews 11.3 that, that faith is what allows us to believe that, that the things that we see were not created out of things that were seen. But they were created out of, out of God's heart, God's mouth, God's voice, God's faith, speaking it out. So that's what we kind of looked at. Then we went to Romans chapter 8 last time. And we see this spelled out a little more clearly. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Not only that, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. Now we'll talk more about this down the road, about what our hope really is in. But Paul's hope, just to give you a clue, Paul's hope was not just that things were going to get better. Paul's hope, especially for what he was talking about here, was the redemption of his body. Your spirit and your soul have been redeemed, but in case you notice that your body hasn't been redeemed yet. You're still living in the old, in the old earth suit that you were given when you were born. That's what allows you to travel around in this planet earth, is your earth suit. It's of this natural material realm. And the only real thing that gives you trouble in this life is that earth suit. That's the only avenue that sin has at you. So when you've determined that you're not going to eat, you know, you're going to control your diet through this holiday season, and you're sitting at some Christmas function, and there's a piece of cheesecake that's talking to you. I was made just for you. Oh, I will taste so good to you. 
you know, and you're just so determined that, you know, and you know what? The part of you that has trouble with that is this earth suit. And Paul said, I'm tired of dealing with this thing. It's the only thing that temptation comes at me through. He said, I am looking forward to the day when I get my new redeemed body. Right before this, he talks about all of creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. That's the waiting for the f- completeness of the redemption, which is of our body. And Paul says, and of all, I'm really looking forward to that. So that's what he's talking about here, the context in which he's talking about it here. Not only that, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. When we get our heavenly, when we get our eternal body. Then, you know, by the way, that's what Jesus was showing off for those days between his resurrection and Pentecost, when, he's, when he was ascended into heaven, he was showing off this redeemed body. Walls couldn't stop him. He just walked through walls. You know, nothing stopped him because that body was more real than the wall. That's why when the more real comes in contact with the less real, the less real has to give way to the more real. That's why the wall didn't present an obstacle to his body because his body was more real than that wall. Now to you and me that wall is real because we reach out and touch it, but to an eternal being that wall doesn't stop them. And so that's a teaching for another day. But you have that to look forward to where nothing stops you. You don't get tired, you don't get worn out, sin doesn't tempt you. You're getting some hope up there. Verse 24, for we were saved in this hope. And this is what I want you to see. But hope that is seen is not hope. So if you're, if, if, if you're hoping for something that you can already see, then that's not hope. There's no reason to hope for it because you already see it, which means you already have it in this realm. So that tells us two things. First of all, hope is never looking at what we have now. Hope is always looking at what's down the road. Hope is looking at something, but it's not looking at what can be seen with these eyes. It's looking at something that has to be seen with the eyes of the inner man. So that if we are hoping for what's seen, then that's not hope. Why does one still hope for what he sees? In other words, why are you hoping that that blue chair is going to hold you? That would sound silly because you know it holds you because you're sitting in it. It's doing it. But if we hope for what we do not see... We eagerly wait for it, look at this, with perseverance. That's one of the reasons hope is so important. That's why it's an anchor to the soul. We'll persevere when we have hope. When, we can, when we're looking and can see something that we don't have yet, it keeps us going. It keeps us aiming in the right direction. It doesn't matter what goes wrong, I'm not going to let go of that hope because I can see it. I don't have it now, but I can see it. It's coming. So we have a perseverance because we have a goal for our faith. That's why there's perseverance. We're not just standing in faith. We're moving forward in faith towards a goal that we can see with this eye, these eyes, not these eyes. So you have to have a hope. Okay, now let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we looked at this briefly when we were ending last time. So hope is never in something that we can see. It's always future-oriented. It's always looking ahead to what I don't see with my natural eyes or with my natural senses. But I can see with the eye of faith. 
Paul is talking here. He's just finished going through some of the stuff he went through, which we talked a little bit about last week. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. See, there's that perseverance again. There's that anchor of the soul. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. So he's drawing this distinction between his outer man and his inner man. His outer man is his body, the thing that always is slowing him down, wearing him out, getting him in trouble. The inner man is his spirit man. He's drawing this distinction. So although the outer man is getting worn out, it's getting worn down, and not only was his as a result of age, if you go back and read a few verses earlier, it's the beatings, it's the strain he went through, it's the stress that he went through. Ever, ever look at a picture, and it doesn't matter what president you talk about, on, his, on inauguration day, and then when he turns that office over to the next uh, successor, he's going to say something else. Have you ever noticed how much they age in that office? And it's not just because it's four years or eight years later. It's the pressure of that position. And, and look at what people pay to get in it. Look at what they go through to get in it. And then when they're in it, the pressure that they're under. That's why we need to pray for them. Whether you agree with them or not, the Bible says pray for them. Here's another thing the Bible says. I'm going to talk about this on some Sunday. The Bible says to honor them. <gasps> but I don't like them. I didn't vote for them. Isn't it interesting how when, when it's election time, we'll say, well, we better, you know, we're going to vote what the Bible says about the issues. Right? We don't vote the person, we vote what the Bible says about the issues. And that's right. And then when they get elected, we don't want to do what the Bible says to do for them, which is pray for them and honor them. Oh, but how can you honor some of them? Well, when, when Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1, he said, honor the king. You need to go back and find out who the king was he was talking about. Was not a Christian. Was not a righteous man. It was a man, it was, it, these were, this were, it takes the politicians of our day and makes them look like saints. And the Spirit of God through the Apostle Peter says we are to honor those that are in leadership. Doesn't mean you agree with them. It doesn't mean you like them. But honor is an attitude of the heart. Isn't it an interesting? We want to go with the Bible when it's issues that we agree with. Oh, I could really meddle here. We're Bible-believing people. We're a Bible-believing church until the Bible tells us to do something we don't want to do or we don't agree with. Now it's a matter of, well, but you know, we need to, well, but you know what, but you know what, what I... We either believe the Bible and do the Bible or we don't. Well, I wasn't going to get off into that, so I better not. All right. We do not lose heart. Okay, here we go. Look at verse 17. For our light affliction, which is for a moment. You need to go back and read what that light affliction was. Is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul's looking at what his obedience is earning for him. For a while, this is what I want to get to. For a while, we do not look at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. Now, I've mentioned this before. I can understand how I can not look at things that can be seen. You just close your eyes. We do it all the time. <laughs> there are things we just don't want to look at. So we can look, we cannot look at things that can be seen. But how do you look at things that can't be seen? Well, obviously you can't do that with these natural eyes because he just said you can't see them. 
So there must be another set of eyes we are to look at them with, and that's these inner eyes. Because hope is seeing something. Hope is seeing something that you can't see yet with these eyes. And that's what gives us vision. That's what gives us perseverance. That's what gives us a goal for our faith to add substance to it, to fill in the colors, to fill in the details. Okay. For while we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporal, or in other words, they are of this natural material realm. That means they're passing away, they're changing, they're subject to change. And if you don't believe that, again, look at an old picture of yourself, and then look in the mirror, and you'll see how much that temporal body of yours is subject to change. And that's why he says, but the inner man is getting stronger and renewed day by day. And so the, 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 realm, the realm that we look at and spend so much of our time thinking about, worrying about, focusing on, living our life for, is temporal, temporary. It's here. It says in, the, in, it says in I think it's Isaiah, it's a hand's breath. It's momentary. That's why Paul calls it a momentary light affliction. Why? It's 50 years. 50 years in eternity is it's nothing. All the things that you have put up with and gone through to be faithful to the Lord, I guarantee you, and if you don't like it, I'll give you double your money back. I guarantee you that five seconds of a look in his eye of approval, when you get to heaven, you will forget everything it cost you and everything you went through to be, remain faithful to him. And that reward is for eternity. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's balancing all this stuff he went through, the beatings, the discouragements, the despairing of his life, all the time. He spent more time in jail than he did out of jail. Imagine if they did a background check on Paul. They'd never let him work in a church. Most of the New Testament's written from, from jail. And he go, all the beatings and all the things he just, he just quickly outlines for us, let alone go, could go through some of the stories and details we manage to tell people of what we go through. And he's looking at all that and saying, it's a momentary light affliction because my eyes are not on what I've gone through. My eyes are not on what this is costing me. My eyes are not, my eyes are on. My eyes are on the reward, the glory of the reward that's going to be an eternal, everlasting reward that's going to come from the approval of my Lord, my Master who loves me, even if it's just the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I live for. That's what I serve for. That's what I obey Him for. That's what I motivate myself by, is to hear those words. When I'm faced with a choice that's a difficult choice, I imagine what it's going to be like to hear those words, well done, or what it would be like to see a look of disappointment on his face. And that's what gives me motivation to do what I do. That's what gives me motivation. No matter what anybody else is doing, I will remain faithful because I'm not being faithful to you or even myself. I want to be faithful to him. And when that becomes your hope, nothing in this world can move you. 
Why? Because your hope's not in this world. And when your hope's not in this world, the devil can't take it away from you because the only realm he has influence in is this one. He has no influence in that realm. So when our hope, that's why Jesus said, lay up treasures for yourself in that realm. Doesn't mean you can't have stuff here. Just don't let it be your treasure. But your treasure needs to be, your hope needs to be, your eyes need to be on that realm because that's where your reward is. And he can't mess around in that realm. He can't corrupt it. He can't influence it. He can't deteriorate it. He can't do anything to it. This is the realm he can fool around in. Why? Because he's still the God of this realm. So when your hope is in this realm and the things of this realm and the approval of this realm, and we're way ahead of myself, then your hope is in the devil's hands to either lift up or crush and throw down. And that's why so many Christians are up one day and down the next and up one day and down the next because they put their hope in this realm that's not, this is in the hands of the God of this realm. So in essence, they've put their hope in his hands. Instead of what Paul tells us to do is to put our hope in that which can't be seen because that is eternal. All right. Now, I want to get into, we talked at the end, we talked about some examples last time about seeing things. And we talked about um, uh, in Genesis 15 where God calls Abraham and, and, and Abraham said, you know, well, I don't have a son. And, and instead of God saying, you know, I'm going to give you a son, he had him see the stars. He had him create a hope, a, a, a vision of something. Because what we was teaching you is last time is it is, and this is not my term that was used. I got this from another teacher. Is it's a positive imagination. And we're going to look at it from that perspective. It's a positive imagination. And we all have the ability to imagine. Picture things. I mean, if somebody asks you for directions, you don't, you don't spit out a map. You picture, you get out and you, and you picture what the corner looks like and you picture things. If I say apple to you, you're not thinking of the cellular structure of this piece of fruit or the chemical makeup of it. You have in your mind what an apple means to you, whether it's green or red, whether it's large or small, whether it's got worms crawling, whatever it is, you have an image in your mind of an apple. So we all work with images all the time. And images influence us. I'm sure almost all of you have had the experience of having a vivid dream. And you wake up in the morning or in the middle of the night from the dream, and your body is physically reacting to that dream. Your heart's pumping fast. You may be sweating or you may wake, you know, make up excited because it was a good dream. Or maybe, you know, you're, the dream was you were at the, on a roller coaster at the top of this 400-foot roller coaster just about to go down and you have a fear of heights. And this thing starts plummeting and your heart starts going a mile a minute and you wake up and guess what? Your heart's beating like that and you're still in your bed. You never got out of it. You're, you're not in any danger. There's nothing threatening you but the images in your mind have affected your body. That's how powerful images are. And the world understands this principle because they use this principle of visualization. And I shared with you that I was watching, uh, I was watching uh, 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 some golf professional teach a principle that, that he uses in instructing his pupils. And he said, whenever you hit a, a bad shot, and 
all golfers do at some point. Gives me hope when I see the professional, when I see Tiger Woods hook one into the woods or something like that. Is He said, but I will not hit the next shot until I have gone back over that shot in my mind and re-shot, hit it in my mind where I wanted it to go, not where it went. In other words, I will not get up to address the ball to hit it the next time without getting rid of that negative image and replacing it with a positive image. And they talk about how if you ever watch them, they'll stand behind the ball and look towards the hole. And what they're doing is they're visualizing what that shot's going to be. And the professionals do that. So there must be something to it. They've learned something. You understand the world can take some of the principles of God because they work. Just like gravity works whether you're a scientist or not. Whether you understand uh, Einstein's theory of relativity and his theory of gravity or not, it still works for you. Whether you understand the law of lift and why an airplane, you know, a multi-hundred, you know, several thousand ton airplane can get off the ground with you and your luggage and your family in it or not, whether you understand it or not, you can still get in a plane and take off. It, you, it still works whether you understand it or not. The world uses some of the principles of God's kingdom and it works for them because they're principles and they work. Do you understand that there are people out there that are ungodly people that sow, give, and it's given back to them because it works. It's a principle. It works. It works whether you're working it, whether you're intentionally working it or not intentionally working it. And so the world operates on this, and there are people out there teaching you how to visualize success where they're just creating, they're creating a positive imagination. They're creating hope. And that's what hope is. And we're going to talk about, though, and this is about how to do this God's way. So hope is really using your imagination to picture a positive outcome or a future. And how whatever you picture affects how you're going to operate. Now, biblical hope is based on something God has promised, not just wanting to hit a good golf shot. But it's visualizing, picturing what God has promised, and there's much more, this, there's much more substance to that than positive thinking. And so we looked last week at, at, at Abraham and how God was help, wanted, trying to help him to see, to see, not with these eyes, but with these eyes in here, to see and expand his vision and his imagination to see a multitude of nations when all Abraham could look at was, I don't have one son. And that's where so many of us are. We're looking at what we don't have because what's in front of us is our immediate need and God wants to lift our vision up and see what's possible with Him. And that creates a hope that we can then begin to put our faith to so we can give substance to it. And then we ended about in Joshua 5 when we saw that the children of Israel had come across the, the, uh, the, Reds, the, uh, the Jordan River, but the, ran into this major obstacle, which was the city of Jericho, which was walled up. And Joshua's going up on this little hill and just, you know, praying and contemplating what he was going to do, and an angel appears to him. And after they have a little bit of a discussion and, and Joshua takes his shoes off, the angel says to him, See, I have given the city into your hands. Now he's about to tell him something to do that makes no sense. Now, I, I, you know, we have people here that uh, Mr. Gilliam's taught at the War College. We have other people here that come and go on to talk at the War College. I haven't asked him this question, but I'm relatively certain they don't teach this strategy there. 
Because what the angel was about to tell Joshua to do, you know the story, was to take the children of Israel and march around the city once a day. Don't say anything. Just march around the city. Go back to camp. Do this six days. And on the seventh day when you march around, do it seven times. And at the end, shout and the walls will come down. Now, there's no natural connection between walking around a city shouting and walls coming down. There's no way understanding can figure out how that could possibly work other than God said, do it. And it created a positive imagination, even though they didn't understand it. So the angel, in order to get Joshua moving on it, he had to say, see, I have given the city into your hands. And while Joshua's looking with these eyes, the walls are up, the chariots are still going around the outside, and the walls haven't come down, but the angel's saying, see, I have given the city into your hands. See, God talks as if something's done because when he's made up his mind, it's done whether you feel it or not. And so all hope is, is beginning to see what God sees even though you can't see it in this room yet. And that's the difference between the golf professional who's seeing his shot curve around those trees and land in the middle of the green because it's his idea of what he wants done. What we're talking about is finding out from God what God sees, what God wants done, and then we ask God to help us see what he sees. Now the strength of that hope and the faith comes from that's what God sees done. And often it looks to these eyes impossible like the walls of this fortified city coming down just by walking around it. So there had to be vision created. There had to be hope created by a positive imagination that originated from God that they began to see and get in line with. All right. Now let's go, I want to give you some scriptural examples of this in terms of Paul's teaching. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. This section of Scripture may be the richest 20-some verses in the Bible. I call it spiritual cheesecake. Better not go there. Now, Paul is about to instruct them, starting in chapter 4, about some changes they need to make and how they operate together with one another. But Paul doesn't just come in and say, look, you guys aren't getting along right. You need to do this. You need to do that. Husbands, look, you, you know, you've, you're not treating your wife right. Wives, you've got a bad attitude about your husbands. Kids, you're not listening to your parents. And servants, you're not taking, you're not, you're not, you know, which is what he talks about. But he starts by talking about what God's done for them. Calling them back to what God's done to, for them and who God's made them to be. He calls them back to that because they'd lost that vision. You know, we go around acting like the world because we forget we're not of the world. But as you begin to talk about and think about yourself for who you really are, that you're God's child, you're special to Him. He's with you, He's in you wherever you go. So when you go that place you shouldn't be going, you're not going alone. He's going with you. You're taking him there. 
But see, when we have an image of ourselves as, well, I'm just, you know, I'm just an old good sinner, you know, and God saved me by grace, but I'm really nothing, anything. I'll never amount to anything. We begin to see ourselves that way. We begin to see ourselves that way. Then we will, you will act on, you will act in accordance with how you see yourself. And so Paul calls them back to how God sees them and what God's done for them. He's giving them hope by changing how they see themselves to line up with how God sees them because how God sees them is how they really are. And so, let's start in verse 7. Well, now let's go to verse um, 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined, that means planned ahead, us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. So He's told us already that we've been given every spiritual blessing, that He chose us before we were ever born, before the world was created. He's chosen us to make us holy and blameless before Him in love, having planned ahead that we were to be adopted as His children, as His sons and daughters, by Jesus Christ Himself. It's His will. It's His good pleasure to do this. Not that we talk, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He bestowed us when He made us accepted in the Beloved. So we've, we've been given every spiritual blessing. He chose us. He's made us to be holy and blameless without, before Him in love, predestined to adoption as sons, according to His good pleasure, and He's made us accepted in the Beloved. That's just in the first three verses. In Him... We have. Notice, this is all past tense. Just like the angel speaking to Joshua. See, I have made you. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound to us, not will abound, he has made to abound to us in all wisdom and all prudence. So he's, his grace has abounded. Some translation says he's lavished it upon us having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, in the dispensation of the fullness of time, that He might gather together all in one and all things in Christ, both whom are in heaven and earth in Him. Verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Now, that's something to look forward to. He's giving them hope. Not just in the sweet by and by, but hope here now. Having obtained, not you will someday, having obtained an inheritance. Being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So this isn't depending on you. This is God working out His will in your life by virtue of which you have an inheritance already. That we who first trusted in Christ, verse 12, should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's how you were saved. In whom you have believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. 
So it's not just some lawyer that says, yes, you're written into your grandfather's will. He's given you something you can hold on to as the guarantee. And what you have to hold on to is the fact that the Spirit of God is in you. So I don't know what is in you. Does this Bible mean anything to you? When you read it, does it go off in you? That can only happen because the Spirit of God is in you. Opening your eyes to see it. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. There, that is a phrase is again. Oh, well, that preach, but we're not going to go there. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, did not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So with that background, this is what he's been praying for them. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that over me and over my family every day and over you. Look at verse 18. This is what we're talking about. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. For we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. Faith gives substance to things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. Paul has just described to them in very general terms what God has done for them. Has told them that there is an inheritance that they already have. And the problem is these they already have these but they're running around acting like the world in their dealings with each other. Acting like what he says in 1 Corinthians, mere men, when they're not mere men. They're children of God who've been recreated in God's likeness, in God's righteousness, who've been made holy and righteous in His sight and been given every spiritual blessing, adopted as sons and daughters. That's who we are. But they're walking around without any vision of that. They're walking around with no hope for that. They're walking around trying to work themselves out in the terms that the world works in. And Paul says, he prays, look at this. That the eyes of your understanding might be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope, oh, that's what we're talking about, of His calling. And what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of the power that He displayed towards us when we be who believed according to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead? Wow! And He's praying that God would open the eyes of their understanding that they would begin to get a glimpse of this. Because when they begin to get a glimpse of this, they're going to have a hope a confident, steadfast assurance no matter what they're going through here. No matter what they're going through here, they're going to have a hope. My goodness, I'm not just some mere human dealing with this. I'm not some mere human that God's forgotten about in the midst of this trial. I am a child of the living God. I can walk righteously. I can love my wife. My wife can respect. My wives can respect us. Children can obey their parents. We can get along with one another. Why? Because we belong to one another. And the one we belong to together 
together is our Father God who's done all this for us. That's our hope. That's our confidence. That's our future. And we have it now. But God needs to open our eyes so we can get a vision on the inside. So we can have a positive imagination of what He already has done. This is what's different from that golfer. He hasn't hit the shot yet. And it's his will, it's his pleasure, it's his desire that that thing land on the green. We're talking about something that in the mind of God has already been done. That God sees it in that other realm. And it's his God's will for your life. It's God's plan for you. It's not whether or not you win the golf tournament. It's what God wants for you. What God's paid for you and me. He just needs us to open our eyes so we can see what he sees. Just as that angel said, see, I have given you that city. God's, Paul's praying, God, open their eyes so they can see what you have done for them, who you have made them to be, the hope that you have for them. Open their eyes that they can see that you, the inheritance that they have so that the stuff in this world won't weigh them down. They won't worry about what they have or don't have. They have an inheritance in heaven. First Corinthians chapter 2. One of my favorite verses. I used to read over this and it didn't mean anything to me until it went off in me one day. And I began to see with these eyes what the incredible verse this is. Now, what he's been talking about here, because again, he's writing to a different church that's got some of the same problems and some worse ones. This is the one he writes to. He says, you're acting like mere men because you don't get along. There's divisions and strife and cliques in your church. And he said, you're just like mere men because that's what people do. But we're not just people. We're children of God. We belong to him and to one another. And so he says... The problem is that the, that the world, that, that the Greeks, the, the, the Jews are seeking miraculous signs to prove that God's real. And the Greeks do everything by wisdom. They have to understand everything in order to accept it. But you're in Christ because you believed. So God did not use the wisdom of the world in fact, he uses the wisdom of the world, his wisdom, to confound the wise. And the power of the Spirit to confound those that think they're mighty. And he says, there's not many of you in the body of Christ that were wise and not many of you are mighty. Because God chose the weak to confound those that really think they're strong. They're really not either. And that's why the more I walk with him, the, the, more, the weaker I realize I am in myself. But Paul was even further along and he realized how much, more, how much weaker he was because that means we're more and more dependent upon him. But then in chapter 2 he says, but there is a wisdom to those who are mature, those who understand who God is and those who have a relationship with God. There is a wisdom that he gives us. And that's where he starts talking about this. But this is what I want you to see tonight. He talks about this wisdom. Well, verse 6. 
However, we speak a wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of the world to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for as if they'd known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is what I wanted to get to. But as it is written, eye has not seen, we're talking about hope, Hope that's in things seen is not hope. So hope is when things that you can't see. Eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. So hope is looking at things we can't see and not looking at things that we can see. And here the Apostle Paul is saying, there are things God has prepared for us that our eyes haven't seen yet. That our ears haven't heard yet. It hasn't even entered into your heart all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Oh, but look at the next verse. I know you hear me pray this all the time, but I want you to see this. But your eyes haven't seen it yet. Your ears haven't heard it yet, and it hasn't even entered into your heart. All that God has prepared for... See, the, the religion has this image of God that He's stingy. That He's finding reasons why He doesn't have to give things. Because it's based on what their heart's like. But my Bible gives me a very different image of God. You, know, you understand nobody made him send Jesus to the cross? Remember the, in we, the verse that we just read in Ephesians chapter 1? How many says, to his good pleasure? That means it was his idea. This is what pleases him. What pleases him is blessing us. It's not like he, oh, I got to. They tithe and I've got to do it now. He's saying, please tithe. Please give so I can give unto you. Like a parent saying, I said, you know, if you clean your room, if you clean your room, I'm going to take you out to your special restaurant. I'm clean, and you please do it, please, because I want to bless you. One of my other favorite scriptures is Romans 8.32, which says, He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up as it was all, how will he not also together with him freely give us all? He's not holding anything back. He's emptied his pockets out. I mean, if he, if he reached in there and pulled his son out, then everything else came out with him. Ever do that? You go to reach in your pocket for something, and when you pull it out, everything else comes out? That's what God did. That's what that verse means. But we have to see it with these inner eyes. Oh, but look at verse 15. Oh, oh. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. See, the wisdom of the world comes through the understanding of the mind. That's what Satan got Eve to do in the garden. Adam just disobeyed, but Eve was deceived. That's what the Greeks were doing. They, were, they, they had to understand something, which means their mind had to be the, the ultimate authority. If they could understand it, they would accept it. If they didn't understand it, 
they rejected it. Or if it looked foolish to them, they would just dismiss it. And that's what Paul ran into on Mars Hill. They just dismissed him because it was foolishness to, him, to them. And that's what he writes about. To the world, to the Greeks, it was foolishness. But to those that are being saved, it's the power of God to transform us into his children. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. Look at this. Oh, I love this. For the spirit searches all things. Yes, even the deep things of God. See, the Holy Spirit's not just passively hanging around until God reaches over and says, go show David this. Go let Phyllis know this. No, the Spirit of God's digging around. That's what this says. He's actively searching. You over in John chapter 14, Jesus says when the Spirit comes, He will lead you into all truth. For whatever He hears, He will tell you. You know, God's a talking God, a communicating God. But look at this. Look what He does. But the Spirit who is from God that but, but that we might know all things. Verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, even the depth, deep things of God. So He's actively searching the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so. So nobody knows your heart better than your Spirit. Even so... No one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. God's Spirit knows His intentions and His heart better than anybody else because that is God's Spirit. Just as nobody knows you better than your own Spirit. So God's Spirit, the Spirit that's in you, is literally God's Spirit. Who knows His heart and His intention towards you. And he's been depositing you with the assignment to take those deep things of God's heart that he's searching out and reveal them to you so you can now see them with these eyes, hear them. You can't see them with these eyes. You can't, but you can see them with these eyes. That's what gives you hope. That's what Paul was praying for the church at Ephesus when they would see what God's done for them, who he's made them to be. Verse 12, now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Look at this, that we might know the things that have been freely given, not will be, have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words with man's wisdom, which teaches according to the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spirit. Okay, now how do we apply this in our life? Sounds exciting in church. But I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm certain that almost every one of us has some situation, whether it's in our family or finances, relationships, job, whatever it is, where, where, we, where we've been praying for something. What we're talking about is the Holy Spirit who is in you 
is, 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 is God's imagination. Remember what hope is, is a positive imagination. It's, it's a confidence, a steadfast confidence of something positive. The world out there adopts positive thinking, so I decide what I want, and now i got to think positively about it. But what we're talking about is not me coming up with an idea that I now make myself think positive, because somewhere down inside I know it came from me. And it'll work to a measure. But we're talking about asking the Spirit of God to show us what God sees about that situation. And then as these inner eyes begin to get open up and we begin to, that inner imagination begins to develop of what God sees, now our faith has something to give substance to because this whole idea was God's anyway. That's why we often pray too quickly about situations. Somebody comes to us and say, or some emergent, some situation, well, we're going to pray for it and say, God, please heal this thing. Instead of going inside. Remember who's living inside of you? The, the one who's got an assignment to go digging around deep in God's heart and find it. What do, you, what do you want here, God? What do you want here, God? Oh, by the way, in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, gives us the other side of it. It says, because when you're praying and you don't know what to pray, Literally, in the Greek, it says you don't know the what to pray. God's helped you with that too because the same spirit in you has a reverse role because it says he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words according to the perfect will of God. So we've got the spirit of God in us who's showing us what God sees so that we can now begin to pray the will of God in that situations, but he needs to show us images, pictures, so that our imagination can begin to, that's why meditation is so important. Meditation isn't just reading the scriptures over and over again, it's picturing, it's taking your fertile imagination and allowing, beginning to picture what would it be like if I could actually see this with my natural eyes? What would it be like if that child, that grandchild, that relative that I've been praying for, nothing seems to be happening. What, could, what would that look like if I'm sitting in my blue chair and the Pastor John gives an altar call and from the back, this daughter, this granddaughter, this child comes down, kneels down before with tears. What would that be like? You begin to see that inside. The Spirit of God begins to paint that picture inside of you. Now your faith joins with that. And this is God's will. You're beginning to get that picture inside of you. But we are too impatient. We want to pray too quickly instead of asking the Spirit of God show me what you see oh, I've had situations where I had God say you know the, the problem is the issue is you know the problem is the way you see this person he says you know you're, you're, you're talking one way but you see him a different way and I said well Lord that's how I see him what do I do he says ask me how I see them Now, he started this with my wife, with, about with me. He says, that, you know, he began to deal with me about how I saw her. And, and I didn't like what I saw about how I saw her until I realized I was communicating that attitude. 
And I was trained in that attitude growing up. We're not going to spend time going there right now, but I was trained in that. And God, out of his grace, showed me. He said, you're saying one thing, but your inner attitude towards her is very different. And I, had to, I repented when I saw that. I said, Lord, I didn't mean to do that. He said, no, you didn't mean it, but you've been doing it. I said, then what do I do? He said, ask me how I see her. So I began to do that every day. Lord, show me how you see her. We started with, she's my daughter. Oh. She's not my wife. Yes, she's your wife, but she was first my daughter, and I entrusted her to you. Okay. <clears throat> but I received that, and so I started, God, show me. Because, you know, it says in, in Peter, you know, live with your wife in an understanding way. I asked God, give me understanding today that I might know what her needs are, that I may know how to be a husband to her today, that I might have, see as you see. Give me vision. Give me something to see, Lord. And he's extremely faithful to do that. We need to learn to do that for situations in our life. Lord, show me a job. Show me what that would be like. Give me vision for a job, Father. Give me vision for my relatives. Give me vision for a healthy marriage. Give me vision for this need. Give me vision for this. Lord, show me. Holy Spirit, help me to see. Open the eyes of my understanding that I may see the hope of your calling for that person. It's praying for him to give you that, that positive imagination. What God sees is the potential. What God sees. You begin to look at it through God's eyes and the faith is much easier because you're already seeing something before you've seen it with the natural. And the faith becomes so much easier. Jesus operated in that all the time. We have to close. We have to close. Praise the Lord. Next, next time we're going to get into this works in the positive and this works in the negative. And we use this all the time. You're always using your imagination. Let me tell you what it's called. Worry. Worry is using your imagination, imagining a negative outcome. Because if you notice, worry is always about the future. It's about things you can't see yet. Oh, the thing that triggered the worry you may be able to see, but you're already drawing conclusions about what's going to happen, and you're reacting to that picture that's already down the road, even though that isn't necessarily what's going to happen. We'll talk about that next time. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you saw us before the foundation. You saw us not only where we are now, but you saw us crossing the finish line in victory and in joy. You already see us standing before our Lord at the time of rewards. You already see that, Lord. And that's why you've been so patient with us. That's why you've been so gracious to us, because you already see the end from the beginning. Father, help us in the situations of our own life. <clears throat> help us in the situations where we've been praying and trying to be in faith. Help us to see those situations the way you see them. 
Father, if the Apostle Paul can pray that prayer over the church at Ephesus, and that's in the Word, surely we are entitled to pray that over ourselves and our family and one another. So I ask you tonight, Father, for each and every one of us, that you would open the eyes of our understanding that we would truly see the hope of your calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who is actively searching the depths of your heart so that he can reveal to us all that you have prepared for us that we haven't seen, that we haven't heard, and we haven't even begun to imagine. You are so good. But most of all, most of all, Give to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you. That we may begin to see you as you really are with these inner eyes. Oh Lord, it'd be nice to see you in the in it manifest yourself with our natural eyes. But those moments pass away and the memory fades. But it's the times when we see you with the inner eyes those never fade away. They're eternal moments. May our eyes be open most of all to see you that we may know you as you truly are. And all your glory, all your love, all your goodness. Your word says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, satisfy the inner longing of our heart with your infinite goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.